This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. The peaceful transition of power from one president to the next is a hallmark of the American constitutional order, a ritual that provides continuity for our government as well as an opportunity for change and renewal. To ensure a smooth and safe transfer of power, the next administration and senior level appointees need to be ready to lead and manage the government effectively when they step into office on day one. Through a four-pronged approach, the Ready to Govern initiative, a collaboration among the Partnership for Public Service, the IBM Center for the Business of Government, and a host of other partners, will assist the 2016 presidential candidates in navigating the transition process. What are the key objectives of the Ready to Govern initiative? How will it promote presidential transition reforms within Congress? What is it doing to put management at the forefront of the next administration's agenda? And how will it work to train new and seasoned political appointees? We will explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Max Steyer, President and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service. Max, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So, Max, what is the mission of the Partnership for Public Service? How has its mission evolved since its inception? We are a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization trying to make the government, the federal government, more effective. And we started originally 14 years ago Uh, founded by a gentleman by the name of Samuel Heyman, who got concerned uh, as a former Fed himself that um, talent was not interested in going in the government at the same level as it was when he had graduated from, at that point, Harvard Law School in 1963. And so you ask, how have we changed? Um, We started as an organization primarily focused on how we improve the talent pipeline into government. And we've really expanded our notion about the, the nature of the problem and what we need to do to solve it. So we're now much more full solution. We work on getting the talent in, which is a piece of the puzzle, but also trying to improve the leadership capabilities of those that are there, both political and career, trying to create work environments that engage federal employees, and that's our best places to work rankings as the lead element there. We're also focused on the systems aspect of this, and we propose, as an example, a broad reform of the civil service system. And then the sort of last piece of our activity is focused on trying to build external support for effective government. So we have definitely expanded our charge as we've better understood uh, the challenges facing government. And and I'd like to pick up on that. So what are some of the specific public management challenges that you're focused in on, and you alluded to some of them? I'm using that as sort of the jumping off point to understand the exact programs you you are pursuing. Sure. I mean, I think at the end of the day, it starts with thinking about what do we want government to do for us? You know, it really is our primary tool for dealing with 
um, our most challenging collective problems. Frankly, it's the only tool that that has got the imprimatur of the public uh, um, behind it, and frankly, also the, the the tax dollars of the public as well. And when you look at our government today, and you think about the world that we operate in, um, we need a government that is able to do better uh, all the time. You know, we have a world that's changing, becoming more challenging, globalized, moving faster, and we need a government that can keep up and, frankly, um, get ahead of some of these issues. And there are a lot of troubling signs about our government's ability to do that, and the headlines uh, of late have have held, you know, many of those. Uh, of those problems, and you think about what's going on with the VA right now, or you know, really going back to healthcare.gov, our government has done a lot of really great things, but it's also you know had a lot of problems, and uh, that's really the the sort of touchstone for us about what it is that we need to do to help government do its job better. What is it to be the president and CEO at the partnership? So uh, you know, it changes as you suggest in the question. I mean, I think our Belief as a mission organization is to, that talent is sort of fundamental to everything. I see that talent is fundamental to my job as well. So, one of, if not the most critical roles that I play is trying to, you know, recruit in, uh, retain, and empower the very, very best people um, in, in in the partnership. And we've, you know, as a result, have had you know sort of best places rankings, and you know the. Nonprofit Times is listed as one of the top nonprofits in the country and in D.C., best organizations. And that's all from the employee voice perspective. Yeah. I take that part of my job as, as really fundamental. You know, the whole point of an organization is to be able to do more than any one person can do on their own. It's all about leverage. It's all about finding great talent that can work well together in a good culture and achieve more than the individual parts could. And so that's, you know, job number one for me is, is all, all around the talent and talent management. Clearly, resources... Uh, you know, generating resources, finding the resources for the organization is another big, big chunk of what I have to do. And then there's strategy and, uh, you know, thinking about, you know, we are always going to live in a world of constrained resources. How do we identify and approach these problems in the most effective way possible and learn? Because whatever we do can always be better Mm -hmm. and we need to make sure that we're continually pushing in that direction. So I would say those are the three most important components of my work. So you've been the leader of the partnership since its inception. Correct. Can I ask, um, you've outlined or highlighted some of the challenges in that role and the, and the need to be agile and flexible and nimble in your business model. What has surprised you most since being at this role? Oof. Um, you know, that's hard because uh, I'm very much a person who believes in uh, taking the world as it comes. And so... Um, and very forward thinking, so it's hard to think back about big surprises. I mean, you know, plainly on the on the, you know, the negative side, Sam Heyman passing away was a, you know, was a was a, a very very awful uh, experience and, and a big surprise. I mean, he was uh, in in good health, and it was a you know literally a set of accidents that led to his his passing, and and that was a huge surprise. You know, there have been very good surprises on the flip side, which you know are mainly around again talent and people. The greatest satisfaction I get are, are are really around things that happen, that get done, that are making a big difference that I have had nothing to do with. <laughs> and it really, I mean, again, that's that's the great joy to me about organizations is you can see great things happen that you haven't done. And so I look at the Service to America medals, the SAMIs, and see the impact it's having both specifically on the people who are being recognized in the federal government for the amazing things that they're doing, uh, as well as the organizational impact. And I'm just floored 
uh, and, and, and so pleased. I look at our best places to work rankings and see how, you know, the focus on employee engagement and the employee voice has just, you know, exploded since the creation of a, of a, of a measurement tool, uh, which is something that to me is a huge achievement. And I look forward and I look at the transition, presidential transition work that we're doing and think, you know, that there's a place where we can have an, an immense impact. Um, anyway, life is full of a lot of, a lot of good <laughs> things, and, and I feel very blessed. It, it kind of hints at a little bit of that point at your leadership style and management approach. Could, could we explore that a little bit? What, what are some of the leadership principles you follow? And perhaps you could maybe anecdotally highlight them in practice. Part of it is, is really trying to empower the people around me as best as possible because, again, I think um, it's all about leverage. And you have to learn that you need to hire people who are the best possible people who can be part of a broader culture and effort that's, you know, that's unified uh, and that then ultimately can achieve more. Um, you know, a lot of the rules to me are the rules that you, you know, that you teach to your kids. You know, it's, you know, you want to treat people in the way that you want to be treated and you want to, you know, always be listening. I think, um, you know, there, there's, a, there's a world of gray out there. And one of the things that I think challenges many people is dealing with ambiguity. And it's all about, like, I realize that what I say is less important than what I do. And so I want to try to model the very best behavior. I want to be the very best person I can possibly be. Uh, and, and, and I think that, again, is just the sort of things that, you know, you, they're not complicated. They're pretty straightforward. And where are the things that are unusual that I think that, that don't necessarily come out? Well, one is I'm a big believer that it's really hard to get good information. And the larger the organization, it doesn't have to be that large. And the harder it is to actually get real good information about what's actually happening and get people to be willing to share the bad things that are going on and to look at you as an ally fixing them. And so I, I try very hard to talk to a lot of different people, to keep my you know ears and eyes open, and to be as supportive as possible to people who bring forward uh, you know challenges as opposed to uh, you know um, ever punishing the messenger or you know focusing just on the on the good things that are going on. Um, I think you know recognition, and again this comes back to kids, is incredibly important. And, you know, in a nonprofit context, and I think it's true everywhere, you don't have the same kinds of financial tools that you might in a for-profit organization. But even if you did, most people care an awful lot about seeing their work recognized by leadership and by their peers. And that's something that I then try to focus on a fair amount. But, you know, and part of it is everyone, I think, has to be there themselves. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. the you know, the authenticity is really, really important. It's important for the people around you. It's important for, for, my, for me. I mean, like, I want to enjoy my job, and I'm, I like to learn. And so I want to uh, always gather as much information as I can, but also then information for a purpose, too. I want to serve the people that I'm working with and not leave them in the lurch if they're waiting for something, whatever else it might be. So, you know, that's a little bit of hodgepodge. I don't have my, near my top five lessons, <laughs> one, two, three, four, five. Or ref- but actually like a, much anyway. more refreshing than, than the euformulaic. Actually. Well, I don't know. Again, I think everyone has to find their own way. Mm-hmm. And, and again, sort of the core pieces obviously are about communication and learning and, uh, and a recognition that you can't do it all yourself. And, and I think if you, you have some of those basic building blocks, you can get a lot done. And I think you said it, you said it right on. The key is being comfortable with ambiguity. Yeah. No, I think that's so, so important and, and hard for folks. What are the key objectives of the Ready to Govern initiative? We will ask Max Steyer, president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour.
How can DOD improve its acquisition processes? Check out the latest IBM Center report, Eight Actions to Improve Defense Acquisition. The authors emphasize the urgency of acquisition reform in DOD, given budgetary constraints and security challenges, finding that DOD will need to gain every possible efficiency while resisting the temptation to buy defense on the cheap. This report continues the IBM Center's interest in better understanding and improving the federal government acquisition process. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest is Max Steyer, President and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service. Max, I'd like to explore the recently launched Ready to Govern initiative. What is the main objective of this initiative? What prompted your interest in pursuing this project? So, um, again, as an organization, we're focused on trying to make the federal government more effective. And um, our focus on the presidential transition is that it, it all begins at the beginning. And one of the sort of core things that many people learn, including myself as a child, about the strength of our country is the peaceful transfer of power. And yet what you don't learn is the – it may be peaceful, but it's typically ugly. It doesn't, <laughs> it's not well organized. It doesn't happen in an effective way. And, uh, you know, this was a, a realization that came to me um, by a question from one of my former colleagues in 2007. You know, she came to me and said, you know, we're a new organization. We've never been through a presidential transition and it's really fundamental to what happens in government. Don't you think we should be focused on this? And I was like, you're right. You do it. Go ahead. Tell me what we should know. And she went off and, and we brought together uh, the presidential representatives of the presidential campaigns at that point in May of 2008. We brought together the Clinton campaign, the Obama campaign, the McCain campaign together with people from the Bush White House and others who had done transition planning. And we had a phenomenal conversation about what needed to be done to do transitions right. And backing up for a second, so from that experience, we recognized that remarkably, there had been virtually no work on trying to create a learning system around the transition process. So transitions have always been done uh, in the dead of the night. They've been seen as political risks. Um, The job number one is to win the campaign and preparing to take over the government was a vulnerability because you might be attacked for measuring the drapes, for celebrating too early. And there was, in essence, literally no available written record about what had been done before, how it had been done, that would enable people to build off of best practice from the past. And instead, you had a set of boxes that were under someone's desk in some far-off corner or in someone's attic that were you know, just a bunch of papers, and that's it, and not accessible. So you had a few people who had done it before, at, at most, you had an oral history transfer, but nothing more than that. And that experience really germinated a big project for us and a, a recognition that we could do tons better. So we're looking for high leverage points. Improving the start of an administration has, in our view, huge potential payoff. And so this is a little long-winded, but mm-hmm. we have created sort of a four-fold yeah. effort, um, one focused on that transition process itself, you know, how is it that you organize to take over the government, the most complicated, most important, and most challenging organization on the planet? And it can't be done effectively between the election and the inauguration, which is 77 days. You have to start earlier, and you have to start with a much more developed strategy and set of goals. And we are putting that together. So we're literally building a transition manual. We have access to prior documents. And we're, as I mentioned earlier, trying to create a learning system about the incoming process. 
the outgoing process has the same needs. So again, it's always been done sort of Groundhog Day, reinvention from the beginning. And that handoff from those that are leaving to those coming in is also very, very important. The Bush folks did it extremely well because President Bush was worried about the vulnerability of a terrorist attack. And in any event, they did a very good job, but we we're trying to systematize that. So that's bucket number one. Bucket number two, I know we'll talk about, but that's around trying to create a management agenda. The third bucket is we're focused on working with Congress, and that is important for two reasons, one of which is they set the rules for transition planning. So one of the changes we were able to recommend and that got adopted was moving the date of transition support from the government from the election day to the convention. And that happened in 2010. Following our 2008 conference, that was one of the recommendations we, we identified. And the purpose there is, again, to change the expectation, change the presumption. They'll no longer see transition planning as a vulnerability, but as a requirement. So the Romney team was the first to actually take advantage or to have the advantage of this new legislative opportunity, and they went to town. They organized early, they organized aggressively, and they had the congressional imprimatur mm -hmm. saying, you need to do this pre-election and you're going to get physical support as of the convention. So that's one big piece of this. In the congressional side, we're also trying to accelerate the appointments process at the front end, and that also obviously requires Congress's engagement as well. Last piece is we're trying to build a curriculum for new political appointees. So part of our notion is it's who you pick and how you prepare them. And picking, in my view, is not done very well, but that absorbs 110 percent of the energy of incoming administrations. They virtually do nothing for the preparing their people to succeed. And we've put together, uh, our VP, Tina Sung, has put together a wonderful curriculum on the things that no one in their right mind would understand coming from the outside about government the federal budget, hiring do's and don'ts, the White House, the larger government ecosystem, the acquisition process, and on and on and on. We're trying to help people from the outside contextualize their capabilities to the federal environment. And our view is that we're doing it now with the Obama folks, but if we can take it to scale with the next administration, we'll have people coming in who will come to productivity a ton faster. And not only will it be the information transfer, but our goal is to create a broader team, an enterprise approach, which we think can be created by training people together. So that's a lot of words and a big mouthful, but that's the, that's the, that's the whole project. <laughs> it illustrates the fourfold uh, and the four pillars you're yep. pursuing. And I'd love to take this segment to sort of um, uh, unfold each one a little bit. And, and, and the first one up would be the, uh, the efforts to assist the 2016 presidential candidates to navigate the transition process. And you alluded to the guide that you folks right. are developing. Well, what else are you doing in this program, and more more importantly, what lessons have been inculcated from previous uh, transitions? Sure. So again, um, you said something so important, which is you know learning learning from those that have come before you, <laughs> and there's a lot to be learned, and, and there's some lessons that that, that folks have adopted. Um, you know, the the during the Clinton transition, the the folks began trying to staff out the federal agencies before they did the White House, and. Uh, failed because the process is so much more difficult. Um, and the lesson everyone has learned subsequently is get your White House team, you know, done first because you can make that happen. No one has to approve those, but you're, you know, internally. And that's, that's so important, again, to learn those kinds of lessons. There's a ton more, though, that can be done. And as you suggest, we're, we've, we're, we're built the guidebook and we're building other resources. But there are a set of other activities we think could add substantial value. Some of them, as an example, are around the personnel process. So, you know, there are approximately 1,000 Senate-confirmed positions. 
Um, I may have my numbers a little bit wrong, but in gross numbers, mm-hmm. I believe the you know the Obama folks did pretty well in getting their teams in early. That meant it took seven months to get all the secretaries and deputy secretaries in. They had, uh, after the first 100 days, something on the order of 17% of their Senate-confirmed positions in. You think about that, and you say, whoa, you know, that may have been better than others before them, but it's not good enough. Yeah. I mean, the front end of your administration is when you have the maximum capability of doing you know, important work, and if you don't have your leadership team in place, you're not going to get done what you possibly can get done. And so our goal is, is trying to actually help whoever comes in next get their top four to 500 people in by that first 100 days, um, you know, 40 to 50 percent rather than 17 percent. In order to do that, number one, you have to make that your goal. Mm-hmm. And no one, to my mind, has ever done that previously. And then you have to understand how you can effectively operationalize that goal, and that requires working backwards. And we're going to be doing the work of understanding what is it that you actually need to do, by when, and how, in order to be able to meet that kind of objective. And it's really a process map. It's also building, obviously, relationships with the relevant Senate committees and a bunch of other work like that. We think if the next administration does that, um, even if they don't get all the way there, they'll get a lot further than anyone else has before. And it will mean that they will have people in place to run the government effectively faster at the most important time of an administration, mm-hmm. when they can lean into problems, when they can set the stage and are not simply being reactive. So that's an example of some of the work that can be done. The Presidential Personnel Office, PPO, yep. you know, it'd be great to examine how that is operated and how that might be you know, organized differently. One notion as an example would be to have someone focused on functions, not just on specific subject matter areas. Example, federal government has very few CFOs in place. By and large, you know, CFOs are, 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 are sought by agency. So someone has the Department of Energy portfolio. They're looking for a lot of jobs to fill you know, Department of Energy, including the CFO. Strikes me that it makes more sense to have someone thinking about CFOs all across government, and that would be an example of why you know you might be able to approach this a little bit differently than has been done before. Same goes with the Office of Management and Budget, such an important organization, and yet near impossible to think about how it might operate differently once you're in place, once you're like running as fast as you can to keep up with everything that's going on. Now is the time to think about hey. Do we have it right? Is there another way to in, in, you know, integrate the budget and, and management functions? Is there another way to orient or to allot the resources of the organization? Again, all that work would be, in my ideal world, done in the here and now you know, so the transition folks could actually benefit from better knowledge so they can make better choices. So, Max, the outgoing administration plays a vital role in the success of a new president. Uh, what exactly can an outgoing administration do to ensure a smooth transition between administrations. Right. Well, and it can, and it's such an important handoff, um, mm-hmm. and there's a lot that can be done. And, and there's legislation that uh, Senators Johnson and Carper have introduced to help, you know, make that a better process. And, and, you know, there's a range of things that can be done. One of them is, and this, this again, it takes two sides to make this work, is to really identify the, the important things that don't rise to the level of a you know, political uh, disagreement mm-hmm. in the campaign trail, identify good things that are going on that ought to be carried forward by whomever wins. And the government is full of those. There's, you know, one of our, you know, hopes is that we will get whoever comes in to understand that all of or virtually all of their early victories will be things that are already in the pipeline. It takes a while. It's hard to do a lot of things to make things happen in government. And, 
the there's a lot of good things that are going on that have not come to fruition. And the mistake that many new teams make, almost everybody makes, is they believe they, they need to reinvent the wheel and they have to make things new. Sometimes they'll just rename something, that's fine, but they don't actively search out the really good things that are in, that are in development that ought to be carried forward. And that won't happen without the kind of championship that top leadership uh, can, can provide. So part of what the outgoing administration can do is to identify those things that's, that are really beneficial to whomever is next coming in and say, get this over the hump, make this, get this finished. Identify the great talent. I mean, again, it's all about talent. Who do you need to re-recruit so that they stay through? If you look at the, you know, the sort of retirement and resignation numbers, they spike over a transition primarily because a lot of the career people don't really want to break in a new team, and it's not <laughs> worth it. So who are the people that you want to re-recruit that are really, really essential to the organization, the operation? And then there's a bunch of things that can be done, and one of the more attractive things that the Bush folks did is a tabletop exercise with the cabinet and the incoming and the outgoing cabinet so they could be side-by-side doing, a, in essence, an emergency response exercise so that they were the new people coming in could learn from the old people coming out, the formers, in a, in, in a way that would enable them to deal with a crisis effectively. And, you know, again, that kind of uh, what I would describe as plain good government handoff is so, so important and so powerful. Um, and the administration can signal to the agencies that they need to uh, focus on uh, being as helpful as possible and they can help organize and make that happen. Um, oftentimes, there's a lot of paper created. It's not paper that's really useful. Uh, there's not a lot of communication that's allowed. And all that stuff, I think, hinders the ability of a new team coming in to, to do the right things at the very beginning. How will the Ready to Govern initiative promote presidential transition reforms within Congress? We will ask Max Steyer, president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. Government leaders and managers face major challenges today, including fiscal austerity, citizen expectation, the pace of technology and innovation, and a new role for governance. These challenges influence how government executives lead today, but more importantly, how they can be prepared for tomorrow. The IBM Center reports Six Trends Driving Change in Government offers a path forward for government executives responding to the ever-increasing complexity and challenges they face today. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest is Max Steyer, President and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service. So, Max, you mentioned earlier, and so that was a wonderful sort of tee-up of the transition aspects of the ready-to-govern. And you just alluded to another, uh, the relationship with Congress and doing some reforms. And I'd like to sort of delve deeper into what Congress has done to date uh, to make this, to you know, reduce the barriers, to make communication possible, to uh, help with the transition. What kind of resources have they provided, right. meaning Congress, and what more needs to be done according to, you know, the Ready to Govern initiative? Right. So I mentioned that, you know, the, there's a really important piece of legislation that was passed in 2010. Yes. The most important aspect of that was moving the date of transition support. The kind of support that the transition teams get are the very basics that you need. So it's office space, computers. And the, you know, the fascinating thing is this is a security necessity mm-hmm. too when you think about it. 
you know, the transition activity is, is done by private individuals. There's no presidential library that has transition documents. It really is fascinating because they're not government documents. And likewise, the systems that they're using to communicate about sensitive things don't have the protections that you would if you were part of the, the government architecture. So even the communications uh, and the, the computer systems and all that is, is so important. Um, we hope this next cycle that that will include even around the, the HR software activity because, again, you're, you're trying to staff the government as a private organization in transition work, and then you move into the White House and you're actually staffing the government through government resources. You need a seamless transfer of, of, of activity, and that's something that, again, uh, you know, more could be done on and, and, and ought to be done on. Mm-hmm. There's also been some, in my view, not enough support for the transition orientation activity to occur. Right now, it's been limited to the first term. And the truth is, of a president, the truth is that a transition occurs even if a president's reelected. And most people don't realize it. When I say most people, the presidents don't realize it, and they don't do the work that's actually necessary to make it a, a successful transition. And we, you know, we, our proposal would enable that, that resourcing to occur across the full sweep of, of, of an administration, first and second term. Two other things. Well, one other piece of legislation was passed sort of central to this endeavor, and one's now in, in process. The one that's been p- passed was a piece of legislation that reduced the number of Senate-confirmed positions mm-hmm. uh, by about 10 percent. And my own view is that there's a lot more that could be done. You know, 10 percent is a good thing, but there are many more positions that, frankly, don't need to be Senate-confirmed. And the importance here is that, you know, the process has become so awful, so long, so ugly to get through Senate confirmation that people are not in place. Mm-hmm. And that means that both t- great talent is being chased away, but ultimately these jobs go unfilled. And again, the CFOs are a great example of that. Uh, they were originally proposed on the list to be taken off of Senate confirmation. And there was a pushback saying, oh, they're too important. We'll do an expedited Senate confirmation process. It doesn't work. And that means that like over half or some huge number of the CFO positions are vacant in government, which is just craziness. Mm-hmm. So. Getting rid of 10% was great. We would like to see more, but that was an improvement. And then the most recent piece of legislation on this topic uh, was passed, as I mentioned earlier, by Senators uh, Johnson and and Carper, and it would largely try to systematize the outgoing process Mm -hmm. uh, in the way that the first piece of legislation was focused on the incoming process. It requires the creation six months before the election of a council of executives, career executives from all the agencies, creates a second council around the political leadership, creates one point of contact from the government, uh, from GSA to be the transition coordinator. And I should say GSA is so, so important in this process and has done a really strong, mm-hmm. strong job. Um, but in any event, that's, that's, that's passed through the, the Homeland Security Government Affairs Committee in the Senate, now needs to get to the floor uh, and then obviously then passed, and then the House uh, has to uh, approve it as well in order for it to become law. But, um, you know, that's something that we, is our top priority in the transition space. I would love to see, you know, some more work done around reducing the number of Senate-confirmed positions. You know, there's some interesting work being done about simplifying the forms. But there's a lot that could be done that would make this process better, that would benefit everyone that's not partisan, that doesn't cost money. You know, it's just just smart you know, governance and we should get it done. You know, reaching out to the Hill and making these reforms possible is essential to this uh, Ready to Govern initiative, but also connecting with the presidential candidates. How would you give me a sense of how you're doing this both informally and formally, getting the Ready to Govern 
idea, vision, strategy out there for them to take heed. Yeah. So um, it, it is one of the challenges, and obviously there are a lot of candidates out there. Yes. Understandably, this is not on most people's radar screens of the candidates, <laughs> but it ought to be. I mean, and, and frankly, yeah, and it should be on the public's radar screen. I mean, part of our goal is to get the public to start asking these questions, and certainly the media. Um, you know, frankly, our perspective is judge the candidates on what they say they will do and judge them on what they're doing to prepare to get done the things that they say they will do. I mean, how will they manage government? You know, and the first uh, management exercise they have is really the transition process, the first and fundamental one that sets a stage for everything else. So we have a long ways to go in order to, you know, to get this to sink into the public consciousness. But to your direct question, it's all about relationships. So you know, it, it's about finding people who are affiliated with campaigns and making sure they understand the resources that can be available to them, the need for them to focus on this. And, you know, our past record has been good by finding, you know, good people and reaching out to them. Now, I will say we are also blessed with a phenomenal advisory committee that have lots of relationships too, and it includes people like Josh Bolton, you know, President Bush's uh, former chief of staff, and, uh, you know, uh, Mike Levitt, who ran the Romney transition, and Ted Kaufman, who was uh, Biden's chief of staff and very active in the legislation I mentioned earlier, Clay Johnson, who ran the Bush, you know, transition. Um, just making sure I've, I've covered my, my my folks here, here, Donna Shalala, who is, you know, just one of the wisest people I know on this stuff. So, I mean, and, you know, we want to grow that circle so that we are able to, you know, to reach the people we need to reach. But there's a strong value proposition for them if we can get to them, and that is, we're going to help them. We're going to help them do this right, and it will mean that if they win, they will be able to govern in a much, much more effective fashion. And to do that, I mean, you alluded to it earlier. So, you, see, so they win. They're getting ready to govern. You got to appoint people, right? And and so, I'd like to talk about the appointment process, but more particularly, how do you make the presidential appointee successful? And what are the, some of the challenges or barriers to doing that? Well, so two two buckets there, right? So the yeah. picking piece and, and you know, the, and, the, and then, the, right, the success piece, which are different. And, I mean, obviously, picking the right people is a starting point. And one hopes that there will be increased focus on the management capabilities of, of the appointees who have substantial management responsibilities, and there are a lot of those. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, you see lots of people being put in jobs for which, frankly, I think they're not qualified because they don't have – the management experience necessary to succeed. They can be very smart, they can be very capable, and they might ultimately learn, but that's not good enough. I mean, I think the bar should be higher, and the stakes are higher. I mean, it's incredibly important what these people do, and the jobs are hard. So, you know, really understanding which jobs require substantial management experience, what kind of management experience, and making sure that those folks that you're selecting have it is critical. And Congress can play a big role there too in the kinds of questions they ask through the Senate confirmation process. On the preparation side, you know, to my mind, you can't really, you don't have the time to teach people the management and leadership skills that they need to succeed. That's, that's something that if they're not coming to the job uh, with that in, 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 in their portfolio, then, then, then they've been picked wrongly. Mm-hmm. Now look at more junior levels you can you can find people who have capabilities that can be grown over time, you know, in the government. And we should see more investment, not only of the career employees, but also the political employees in government. But what I think you can do and ought to do is, again, fill the gap 
uh, between you know whatever you know sets of of experiences the appointees have had from their prior private sector experience or even some public sector experience and what they really need to understand about the federal environment. And as I mentioned earlier, this is an information transfer exercise around a set of topics that people mess up on all the time. The number one, which I didn't mention earlier, is managing the the political career interface. Mm-hmm. So you have 4,000 political appointees who in essence sit on top of 2 million career civil servants. And in my view, again, it's way too many political appointees. Um, but what many come in thinking is that they can recreate a command and control system with their fellow political appointees and not ultimately get buy-in from the career employees. And that's a giant mistake. So part of it is helping the appointees understand that their success depends upon their effectively engaging the career workforce, getting their buy-in, working with them well, and making them part of the team. And that's something that a lot of people eventually learn too late after they've messed up after they've not gotten stuff done and, and where there's a lot of cleanup and when they've run so much time off the clock that they're you know, very, very diminished in their abilities to be effective. So that's a big piece. But there are, again, a set of topics that are really important. And in addition to that knowledge transfer, I really think that a lot of the long-term success of our government will depend on its ability to move to a more of a full government enterprise approach to what it does. And I'm a big talent person again, and so... I think that comes from having people in the leadership positions who see their jobs as connected to a larger objective, not just to their organization's objective, and that they have relationships across uh, the federal government that enable them to work effectively uh, with different organizations to achieve those shared goals. What is the Ready to Govern initiative doing to put management at the forefront of the next administration's agenda? We will ask Max Steyer from the Partnership for Public Service and Chuck Pro from IBM, who will be joining us when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. In a world inundated with all kinds of information, timely, relevant, and more predictive data can drive better decision-making. Law enforcement agencies are at the forefront in leveraging data and using innovative software to generate predictions that help police prevent crime. What is predictive policing? How can using analytics make us safer? Check out the IBM Center report, Predictive Policing, Preventing Crime with Data and Analytics by Jen Bachner, and find out. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. What do agency leaders need to know about the federal acquisition process? What are some of the key federal procurement trends? And how can agency leaders overcome today's acquisition challenges? Check out the new Center Report, A Guide for Agency Leaders on Federal Acquisition, by Trevor Brown and find out. The report offers practical recommendations for improving federal acquisition. Download your free copy of A Guide for Agency Leaders on Federal Acquisition at businessofgovernment.org and find out how the business of government is not business as usual. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guests today are Max Steyer, President and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service. In this segment, I'd like to welcome Chuck Crow, General Manager, IBM Government Industry. Chuck is responsible for the IBM Center's involvement with the Ready to Govern initiative. Chuck Crow, welcome to the show. It's great to have you back. Well, thank you. This question is for both Max and, and Chuck. Sound management is essential to implementing policy successfully. Given your distinct perspectives 
Why is it so important for our current and future government executives to take the discipline of management seriously? Why does management matter? Max? Well, you know, the headlines of, of the last couple of years are the best evidence of why management matters. And I think the sort of poster child of the of the case is really what happened with the rollout of healthcare.gov. We had a really important debate in our country about, you know, the policy needs that we wanted to see represented by our government with re- with respect to how it supported or didn't support broader healthcare. And at some level, none of it mattered ultimately because our government to begin with was not able to get it done right. And that has played out in many other contexts, whether it's the way we are managing the important needs of our veterans or, you know, concerns about what's happened around the IRS. I mean, fundamentally, um, you know, policy only matters if you can get it done. And that's the proposition that we're focused on, which is uh, how do you operationalize effective policy? It's a question that you see very, very little attention paid to by virtually anyone. And that's a huge mistake. Uh, And we're trying to change that. And um, you think again about the presidential transition context, you have camp, you know, candidates who develop very important and oftentimes long-winded policy <laughs> uh, prescriptions, and at the end of the day, they focus almost no time on how they're going to get those, those things done. Correct. And that's what we're trying to change. You know, if we want a successful next administration, they're going to need to not learn the hard way, but understand up front that they got to pay attention to how they're going to get stuff done, how they're going to implement it, how they're going to run government, and what do they need to do to do that successfully. Mm-hmm. Chuck? Well, that's great. Max, as always, it's uh, nice to be with you. In uh, questions like this and conversations like this, I always find it good just to reflect a bit on all the really great work that the men and women that are serving uh, jurisdictions at all levels do. It, it's you know, We often focus on you know, raising the bar and trying to get to the next level. But there are a lot of really great practices being executed by, again, hardworking men and women throughout government. Uh, But I will say that never in my lifetime anyway have the demands been so great and the constraints so many on government. And it is really forcing governments to play a very different role. I've had the great pleasure over the past three or four years to travel the world several times actually (laughs) and work with governments globally and governments globally are very, very focused on increasing their own economic vitality because the belief is, is that by increasing their economic vitality, they're going to improve their national or jurisdictional competitiveness and ultimately improve the operation of government. Mm-hmm. So again, the role that government plays is of increasing uh, importance to the way uh, economies work globally. Mm-hmm. That's right there with management implementation is if you don't implement things right, you're wasting resources. And it goes right to what you were saying. So Max, I was wondering, what are some of the key management challenges facing government executives today? And what management challenges will the next administration face? So if you can have a crystal ball away. Well, again, I think one of the most important aspects, I think Chuck has got it 100% right. You know, in a globalized world, you compete on the quality of your public infrastructure, and that's your government. And I think this country is falling behind. It's falling behind against competitors globally, but it's also falling behind the private sector. And I think that's quite fundamental. And I don't think, I mean, government absolutely does amazing things. And our Service to America Medals program, you know, brings up some phenomenal stuff. Um, But I think the public's expectations are being set primarily by their experience with 
private sector organizations. And so even, even if government is not getting worse in, in absolute terms, in relative terms it is, it's not enabling the kind of, of experience that the public is receiving from the private sector and therefore it's not matching the expectations, you have reduced trust, and then that becomes an awful downward cycle. And so I think that you know one of the critical issues for us really for, for government going forward uh, is in making sure that it's it's agile, that it's able to change in a much faster fashion, that it's able to be more integrated with the rest of the economy of the world. I mean, you look at the talent as, to me, being the most fundamental aspect of it. You know, today it's somewhere in the order of 7% of the federal workforce is under the age of 30. It's 23-plus percent uh, in the general workforce. Um, it's not uh, diverse, demographically diverse, in ways that are fundamental to how it needs to, to operate. You know, talent doesn't move around as much inside the government or cross-sector in the way that I think is fundamental. So if you ask me what are the critical management challenges, I start with talent. Because, mm-hmm. again, you can have great process, great tra- technology. If you don't have that base of the right talent, the best talent for the future, not just for the now, then you're in trouble. There are great, great people in government, um, but the system is in many ways recreating itself mm-hmm. rather than generating the, the the new capabilities that it needs for the future. And I think that's where... We need to see a lot of action. Do you have anything you want to add, Chuck? Sure. Again, you've emphasized several times today, Max, uh, about talent, and you can't emphasize it enough. You know, we uh, require every day to improve the uh, the talent we have within our uh, within our governments at all levels. I, I will say that I've also noticed that the expectation mm-hmm. of citizens, whether they be in this country or globally, are increasing every day. So as Max very aptly indicated, the, the bar is changing. The bar is being ris- is, ra- is, is raising every day. Now, the great news is that there are new technologies, new capabilities, new management approaches that are allowing us to meet those expectations, uh, whether it be self-service models, if you will, in re- with regard to customer service, whether they be coordinated care, such as you can now see in the Veterans Administration. Our own state of Virginia is a wonderful example of coordinated care. Entire countries like New Zealand are demonstrating enormous results by uh, move to such capabilities. And then finally, we can't forget that although the bar is being risen with regard to citizen-centric expectations, uh, the threats are not decreasing. So the same conversation we're having with regard to serving uh, our citizens, improving mission outcomes, can really be applied to national security as well. And whether it be cybersecurity, whether it be the emerging uh, uh, threats with regards to extremism, globally, uh, there there is an interconnected you know aspect of how improved government capabilities are ultimately going to be required uh, as we move into the future. So this uh, this question's for Chuck specifically because uh, in my opening I mentioned that the Ready to Govern initiative is a a collaboration amongst uh, multiple stakeholders. Uh, including the partnership, but the IBM Center for the Business of Government as well. And Chuck, you were uh, instrumental in making uh, our participation happen. Uh, what prompted your interest in uh, partnering with the partnership, focusing on public management in this initiative? It's just really a natural extension of our core mission to serve our government clients globally. Uh, we worked with Max and his team over probably a decade now, uh, and there is no more important thing that I think we can do right now, but to facilitate a rapid, agile transformation to a new administration, whether it be Republican or Democrat. Uh, Max has outlined you know, very, you know, several very important reasons uh, why that is essential. And from my perspective, 
uh, this is a wonderful opportunity as administrations transition to begin to infuse new capabilities, new technologies, new management concepts to make government even more effective. Mm-hmm. So now I'd like to see so it was a great setup. Uh, now, gentlemen, I'd like to transition to the actual management roadmap. And this is for Max. Um, what are the primary objectives of this effort? And will you outline some of the key deliverables associated with the management pillar of the Ready to Govern initiative? So primary objective is to get, again, as Chuck said, whomever comes in next to start um, from day one uh, with both an understanding about the importance of uh, focusing on management and the need to be able to focus on management to achieve their policy goals, as well as a set of capabilities so that they can do that effectively. Mm -hmm. So that's the primary objective here. And in order to achieve that, um, we recognize that uh, this is not, uh, you know, simply an IBM partnership endeavor, yeah. that there's a whole community uh, out there that is both knowledgeable and important. And it's a, a series of convenings on um, critical topics, not the standard topics that you typically hear around acquisition, HR, but sort of the cross-cutting issues that are fundamental uh, to the success of any uh, larger management effort. So the topics areas include, uh, you know, focusing on talent, as we've already discussed, the need to understand government as an enterprise is a second area of import. Uh, the focus on understanding risk. I mean, that's something that, uh, particularly in the complex world we're entering into, and with the resource constraints we have, we have to think about doing things by focusing on the most important and understanding what is the most important. Uh, and um, we're going to conclude uh, ultimately with a session, which I'm very excited by, on the, what, I, what we call the how. So it's, uh, you know, how is it that you effectively uh, implement in government? And um, there are you know multiple components of that, but so we're convening both academics, practitioners, other critical stakeholders to have um, really in-depth conversations about um, several things, including as we talked about earlier, what's been done right in the past. Yes. So again, oftentimes the focus in these things is thinking about what new do we have to do, what new do we have to do. That's important. It's a component of what we're trying to do right now. But what's already been done has been tried, tested, and probably has some infrastructure in place. And building off of that, I think, is a critical element of of what we're trying to achieve here. That's a great point. It seems like when everybody comes down to D.C., they want to do policy development, not implementation. Absolutely. It's it's And the people who want these jobs are the are policy people. And that's okay so long as they can get it done. And if they can't, not so much. <laughs> you know, I, I was at a, a session last week with uh, what is now a former government official uh, from CMS, and the conversation was around a lot of the great work that they've done with regard to their uh, innovation labs and trying to find ways to scale innovation that really comes from the from the bottom up. And, and that's one example of, I know, five or six, you know, kind of innovation lab concepts that have come out of this administration. So that would be a perfect example of uh, practices that we want to find, we want to protect, and we want to scale as we move into a new administration. So actually, you know, the roadmap, the management roadmap is fairly in its infancy. So, but I'd like to get a sense uh, for our listeners, what has happened thus far? And I think you have convened two roundtables as part of this effort. Can you tell us a little bit about, first up, Max, what has happened thus far? Are the roundtables part of this? What happened during the roundtables? And more importantly, what are some of the preliminary insights derived from these efforts? And have they shifted at all your original vision of the management roadmap? You know, we are uh, what I would describe, I think you're right, sort of at the, the beginning of the race, not 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 the middle yet. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But uh, And it is a race because at some level, we're doing this way earlier than anyone has ever done before. But still the case that there's not that much time uh, you know, to, to, <laughs> to make this stuff happen. Um, but, but we started with a hypothesis. I mean, it's, it's what you want to do about what are the sort of core issues. And we've now had two sessions. The first one was really focused on bringing a set of academics and practitioners together to ask the question, did we have the right uh, structure, the right framework? Had we identified the right set of issues? In a world in which you could choose 100 different topics and, and have interesting conversation, but was there a, a cohesion and a value and a priority to the ones that we had identified? And the answer came back, yeah. I mean, it did. Uh, and as the, the issues that I mentioned earlier, it's around talent and innovation and risk and enterprise and, and the how and how you actually get it done. So, Max, you know, picking up on your point, what are some of the key workforce and human capital challenges that will face the next administration? I would say we've talked number one, and it's what's going to be in the direct purview of the the new administration coming in uh, is the the capabilities of the political leadership they bring in. Okay. There are 4,000 political leaders they're going to bring in. If they do it as been the norm in the past, we're going to be in trouble. Um, <laughs> we need a, we just we need people who, um, frankly, uh, in many of these jobs, not all of them, but in many of these jobs that have management experience and capability as a prerequisite uh, for their selection. And we have to have that next uh, leadership coming in that views this as a leadership team too. So oftentimes there's a lot of like one-offs. You have, you place your secretary, you get your deputy secretary, you get your chief of staff, you're representing different constituencies. And ultimately there's no understanding that it's actually a team. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you get infighting, ineffectiveness, all kinds of problems. So the number one human capital challenge is going to be getting the right leadership team in place at speed because you do it too slowly, it won't matter. You're going to run out of time to actually get stuff done. You know, secondly, on the career side, you have, uh, you know, you know, to me, it all begins with the senior executive service, the SES. Yes. You know, there are 7,000 of them, uh, and they need to behave. They need different capabilities as the world changes, and we need to see a refreshing of that cadre uh, in a very real way. And, and then it's the, it's the new part of the workforce that we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And picking up on that point, Max, I mean, this is for Chuck, uh, what do you think the private sector can do to help improve the efficiency and effectiveness of government? Well, you know, obviously, the private sector and public sector are integrated in a way today that's really inextricable. Uh, but in, in particular, there, there are new and emerging capabilities specifically around data and really utilizing data to inform very, very different ways to conduct missions and improve outcomes. We talked about coordinated care and health care. There are examples uh, with regards to national security, cyber security that we can go to into in great detail, really helping governments become much more predictive. So as opposed to being reactive, whether it be with regards to health and social programs or health and human services, I should say, and or with, with regard to national security, the role that data plays in that is critical today and will be more critical. And whatever we can do as the private sector to bring those capabilities to government, we need to do, point one. I should have talked about cognitive computing in that example. Okay. Cognitive computing will be a very, very different way to conduct some of the most critical government missions, uh, whether it be inside uh, the intelligence community, whether it be inside healthcare, whether it be inside basic functions such as customer service, cognitive computing will introduce fundamental change to governments, uh, both in the U.S. and globally. And the last point I'll make is with regard to uh, mobile technologies. You know, whenever that caseworker or whenever that law enforcement officer or whenever that 
person that is out protecting our country in some place uh, that's far flung from here, whenever they are disconnected from their system of record and their capabilities, that mobile technology is an enormous and will play an enormous role in helping us keep our missions as effective and efficient as possible. So the last question is a, uh, uh, if you had a minute with the president-elect, what advice would you give him or her? First of all, welcome to the job. <laughs> but again, I would like to stay on the theme of man- management is not a back office issue. Management is front and center in creating an economically vital and competitive nation. And as we continue to be the most competitive nation on the planet, uh, what that will mean from both a national security perspective and an economic perspective uh, or should speak for themselves. And I would say what Chuck said. Um, I think that's entirely, entirely right. I think, and, and to operationalize that a bit, I think that you know the the president needs to be able to select and look to you know uh, his or her top leadership um, to actually run the government. I think one of the challenges we see today is too much being run through a very small pipe uh, through the White House without a recognition that in an organization this large, you have to leverage and you have to make sure you both choose and then um, you know, rely on uh, top leadership across the, the whole organization to get a lot of different things done. There'll be some number of centralized priorities, but government can achieve a ton more if you have empowered leadership across the board um, that sees its job as actually making government do good things and not simply play defense. And part of what the President of the United States can do uh, the, the government is organized very hierarchically, very you know, very much up to the top. The president of the United States had three or four metrics back to the data point that the president you know called on on a regular basis of his or her top leadership. You would see government actually perform in ways, and I would things like employee engagement, uh, you know, ensuring that we have the efficiency and effectiveness that we want. The president asked the questions. Um, we would see a government responding in a different way. Wonderful. Well, both Max, Chuck, thank you for joining me today and being on the show. And uh, I just want to also thank you both, more importantly, for making the Ready to Govern initiative a reality. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation on the Ready to Govern initiative with Max Dyer, President and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service, and Chuck Pro from IBM. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What are the U.S. Army's key strategic and operational objectives? How is the Army restructuring its aviation portfolio? How is the Army using analytics to inform decision-making and resource allocation? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and so much more with Brigadier General John Ferrari, Director, Program Analysis and Evaluation, Office of the U.S. Army's Deputy Chief of Staff. Tune in on Mondays, 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio 1500 a.m.